0: are here at 11fs headquarters in london we work for episode 11 of blockchain insider i like that number today we're breaking down is the ico really dead did china just kill it does taxing bitcoin make it real and we speak to matt spoke of aon network now on with the news actually before we get to the news we've got a breaking story It seems that the CEO of JP Morgan, one Jamie Dimon, has decided he was going to comment about Bitcoin. It's made a number of headlines recently that he said that Bitcoin is a scam, and if he catches any of his traders trading it, they will be fired on the spot. One wonders why somebody might say something like this. Bitcoin has certainly been on a bit of a tear lately, although with recent news out of China and other regulators, we're seeing that this has somewhat dropped back. But it's also interesting that this has happened around the same time as the JP Morgan results, which from the JP Morgan trading desk were not very good. I wonder if JP Morgan and Jamie Dimon are talking about regulators being an issue and the difficulty of regulation and a Trump government and talking about Bitcoin as a bit of a diversionary tactic. We'll cover this a lot more in our sister podcast, FinTech Insider, which drops on Monday. If you go to iTunes and look for FinTech Insider, you can check it out there. Uh, and we'll also cover it on the next blockchain insider. But for now, on with the rest of the news. Before we start, uh, I'm joined by Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Joining from Singapore today. Yeah, you're traveling the world. How is uh, Singapore? Is it keeping you warm?
1: It is definitely keeping me warm. In the immortal words, it is just hot.
0: <laughs> it's just damn hot. In, in terms of fintech and blockchain as well, I'm sure. But last week's episode, uh, we asked our listeners to tweet us which celebrities they trust if those celebrities were to endorse an ICO. Of course, you picked Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And since then, we've had a number of alternatives. Who, who were your favorites, Colin?
1: Uh, you know, we we got some good ones in here. We got Stephen Fry, Judge Duty, Dennis Rodman. Uh, we do have to note he already backed PotCoin. So that one's already done. Tom Hanks. Um, then some, we're not so sure if they're so serious, Ron Burgundy and Donald Trump, although maybe Donald Trump is, is very serious. And there is, of course, Trump Coin. That he hasn't yet backed.
0: See, Tom Hanks was the guy that, uh, in the Simpsons movie, they had to call in because he had more credibility than the U.S. government. I mean, if any celebrity's got credibility to make an ICO fly, it's got to be Tom Hanks, surely. Certainly more than the U.S. government nowadays. Brilliant. So um tweet us at Beechain Insider, if you have any other suggestions. We love hearing from you. Now, we better get started with the news. So this week's news, uh, the drama is just continuing. First story here is 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 about as big as it gets in, in the blockchain world recently. Both Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal are claiming China is going to crack down on Bitcoin exchanges. This, of course, follows what we reported last week as a ban on ICOs um, and a wave of activity from regulators. Uh, Colin, what, what's what's the scoop here?
1: Well, so China bans Bitcoin again. So there's a lot of speculation about what all of these things mean. It was last recorded, as we record, um, on the 8th, uh, the Friday evening in China. And um, what they said effectively was, uh, this was by Kaiksen, uh, the media outlet in China, there, there may be a general shutdown of Bitcoin trading on exchanges. Um, a lot of it's really, really speculative at this point. Um, but there is, there has definitely been a concern not only about ICOs and illegal fundraising, but also potentially about Bitcoins trading and what might happen with capital flight. Of course, they're worried about money moving out of China or into China, um, more so out because of their money supply. Um, and also financial crime. Everything from money laundering, buying, selling drugs, up to terrorist financing and things like that have been very popular. We're not really sure what these things mean quite yet because nothing's been confirmed. A lot of the exchanges have come out and denied it. But we'll see what happens in the coming days and weeks.
0: There's a lot of diplomacy that appears to be happening behind the scenes uh, and in the press. Uh, and it's hard to read that from the other side of the world. But it certainly sent um, prices spiraling down with Bitcoin, which had hit an all-time high of 5000 uh, dropped to nearly $4,000, has recovered a little bit to $4,300. Uh, but from a Chinese regulatory perspective, you can see why they wouldn't want capital flight and you could see why they wouldn't want financial crime. Uh, it just seems to be that the uh, the speculation here uh, has become a bit of an echo chamber in the Bitcoin community. I mean, do, do we think that, like you said at the outset, this is banning it again, which actually turns out to be not banning it? <sighs>
1: You know, I I think that there's a good chance that the regulators decide they're going to be more strict with controls around KYC, maybe how much money people can put in, maybe how much can be traded by an individual. They were very clear in uh, all of these articles that China isn't banning Bitcoin and the PBOC even came out with a couple of statements. Uh, It's not their intention to ban Bitcoin, but I do think that they want to close the casinos down. Um, and they don 't want money running here there and everywhere,
0: so money not running here there and everywhere I mean preventing people from committing crime with bitcoin I think is a pretty uh, obvious thing for them to want to do and capital flight of course the uh the ramimbi the, the chinese currency is, is very tightly controlled. You can't export too much of it uh, from China into other currencies. And Bitcoin, you actually could for a very long time. And when the Chinese uh, regulators came and made that harder to do, the volume of activity on exchanges that was Chinese has dropped and stayed low, according to the uh, Coindesk uh, State of Blockchain report from Q2 2017. So certainly looks like these regulations have prevented what might have been activity the regulators didn't want to happen from happening. But it does mean that there's still room for legitimate activity there. It just probably says that they may have been right to, right to do this. I mean, what, what, what perception should people be left with from this?
1: Well, I think it's key in here that um, China is still very much an epicenter for a lot of things Bitcoin. The volumes have gone down uh, between Chinese Yuan, Renminbi, and uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Part of that was because before the crackdown, Bitcoin exchanges were allowing clients to trade uh, without fees and on significant leverage. Um, the Chinese government did rein that in, but it seems like they want to support this this ecosystem. Um, the big miners still happen to be in the interior of China. A lot of these hardware um, productions for mining comes out of eastern China. It's something that creates jobs and I would imagine tax revenue, so they don't want it gone. Um, but they do want to have some controls over it, which is not surprising. So it's good to see that there is a general embrace of uh, cryptocurrencies in China by the government, but they definitely don't want the Wild West.
0: Yeah, I just worry about the perception this leaves people in compliance departments and in, in different banks. To me, it seems like the, the Chinese are probably making good steps, as you see, to crack down on the right things and encourage good behavior. But how that plays out? to uh, a Western audience can be very different and if you're sitting in the compliance department or, or of a large bank, this becomes another reason not to take a risk to not embrace new technology to not embrace uh, startups that might be doing interesting things with new business models because they look a lot like risk um, and we've seen uh, we've seen a lot of that I think, we, we talked a little bit about that on the last show, but but we've seen that they're not the only regulator to make statements on the back of this, there's a story in um, finance magnates where the fca may weigh in on some regulation in the near future um and coindesk of course reporting that the isle of man are looking to unveil a friendly framework for token sales so um, it's it, it's not all stick out there is it
1: no definitely not and i think this is a really interesting one to note in there for for our non-uk based um listeners the isle of man though kind of loosely british is not controlled by the same regulator the uk fca i think like china um Wants to put some kind of regulation in. Wants to make sure that people aren't aren't going around using Bitcoin and blockchain to break uh, break rules. But at the same time, want to generally stay open to innovation, which is very key to the FCA's mandate. Isle of Man, um, being a much smaller jurisdiction, can go out and say we want to move forward, and they put together a framework to say they want to do that. And we see that shadowed around the world. Switzerland has been uh, very well known as being kind of the home for a lot of these things. Has been very helpful. Singapore, where I'm sitting today is very much the center of Asia for ICOs. Um, And I think we're going to see more small jurisdictions go that way, while the bigger regulations might be a bit behind that. And I think generally they'll take the FCA's approach in the West of being open to innovation, but uh, not necessarily wanting everything to go uh, as it would under free market conditions.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a desire to encourage innovation, but to encourage it as much as possible to, in- to try and fit within the system and to do sensible things. And I think there has been a bit of an attitude of, from some quarters, not from all, that they're just going to continue regardless and that it's frustrating that the old world of financial services won't embrace this new world of crypto. Uh, whilst there are many others, of course, that have been uh, very accommodating of, of uh, the old world of law and, and uh, financial services. I think these uh, smaller jurisdictions may be on the forefront of where we see that happen. But some larger jurisdictions are doing some interesting things as well. Moving from kind of regulators to tax, the taxman. The taxman here, um, there's a story in Coindesk about US lawmakers seeking a tax exemption for Bitcoin transactions below $600. What's going on there, Colin?
1: Well, let's take a step back on this one. So um, in the US, Bitcoin transactions are taxed much like property. So um, in the same way if you buy or sell a house, um, you have to pay tax on on any gain there, and you can't really offset too much of your losses. Um I'm I'm not sure all of the background in taxation, but generally it, it's not at all the same as as money. If you were to make a a transaction in the U.S. in uh, euros or in in pounds sterling, you wouldn't necessarily need to account for all the money going up and down. Only when you are actually doing that trading for your for your own um, profit making venture. So what they're looking at is for small transactions less than six hundred dollars, potentially removing that that necessity of claiming your profit and loss on Bitcoin tax. Now, of course, if you hold a lot of Bitcoin for pure investment purposes. You'll still be subject to tax, but this opens up the door for a lot of small merchants who want to allow the buying and selling of goods in Bitcoin to operate without all of these onerous headaches, which should encourage uh, more Bitcoin day-to-day spending or at least small small amount spending, which I think is a positive thing for the space uh, in the US right now where that's quite tricky.
0: Yeah, it makes sense that uh, they've brought this in line with what it would be like if you had other foreign currencies as a US citizen from your tax reporting purposes. Um, And Jerry Brito at Coin Center is quoted as saying this is just bringing Bitcoin in in line with with a lot of other things and making things easier for people. Uh, And there's uh, certainly I've talked talked to a number of tax authorities around the world where one of their main inquiries from the Bitcoin space is, hey, I would like to report my tax legitimately on my Bitcoin gains. How do I? do that and often they, they actually don't know the answer so to have this clarity is helpful uh, for I think the majority of people who want to uh, trade legitimately and to to do so within the law which goes against the grain of what many people assume the crypto community to be about uh, which I think is quite interesting
1: yeah absolutely and and it's good to see them kind of bring this all into line um, it, one kind of side note that I thought was kind of interesting I heard the other day that In the U.S. on an annual basis, only about 1,500 people even report um, Bitcoin gains or losses to the IRS, to the U.S. government for taxation purposes, which is um, quite bizarre when you think of the number of people, at least out there in the U.S., a very large country – who are probably dealing with them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, helps to make it simple, helps to communicate it, and uh, helps to have really clear rules around it, to, so, that, so that people know and that their accountants know. Um, but speaking of tax payments, uh, there is a, a city in Switzerland called Chiasso. Uh, I'm probably butchering the name. That will now accept unto, up to 250 Swiss francs in payment for taxation, uh, which is interesting because we've uh, we've seen Zug in Switzerland. Uh, uh, be famously the home of the initial coin offering. Uh, and Chiaso is uh, clearly trying to set itself up as a bit of a competitor there. Uh, what do you think is happening here with Chiasso? Is this just a marketing ploy? I mean, it's a relatively small amount that you can report for, for tax purposes, but it does seem to be a smaller jurisdiction gradually legitimizing the, the cryptocurrency space.
1: It definitely is. I mean, what what's funny about a lot of these small Swiss cantons is I think their taxes are pretty close to zero. So although we say 250 Swiss Frank is, is pretty low that might be all of your tax bill or even more so I, it's good that they're accepting it there is a weird thing about switzerland right now having negative interest rates so when i was down in zuga a, a year or so ago a lot of people were saying the government won't let you pay your tax bill before a certain date because they have to put it in an account and they lose money bitcoin of course not having an interest rate resolves a lot of that problem so it, it's good to see that they're making this thing a bit more like cash um, even if it is for quite a small amount uh hopefully this teaches the governments a bit more about it and they can open up their, their eyes to other things like ICOs. Potentially we get new jurisdictions just as they're getting this this new income through other things.
0: So it makes me wonder what could be the opportunities to embracing um, cryptocurrencies and, and ICOs a little bit because you mentioned there uh, there are a lot of places in the world where for governments holding on to cash actually isn't a good thing because in real terms they're losing money. So having cryptocurrencies seems like a good thing for corporates uh, when you start to look at it in that world, especially in Japan. Uh, and with ICOs, we've seen famously you know two hundred million dollar, two hundred fifty million dollar raises and uh, these networks that end up in the billions of dollars of value all based out of Zoog none of them paying much tax um, but you know some of them would probably like a really clear regulatory framework and to be fairly certain that they're operating within the law. There, there may be an opportunity for larger jurisdictions here to learn from some of the smaller ones and uh, really create jobs and create economic opportunity in country.
1: I, I think you nailed you nailed it there. Um, there are a lot of opportunities coming out of this um, for a myriad of different reasons. And uh, it's a positive sign to see new small regulators come out and move forward, like we were talking about earlier. And hopefully, that should help the larger regulators start to to realize there's an opportunity for the bigger jurisdictions like the UK, the US, uh, Germany, or Japan.
0: I think it also requires the people doing the ICOs to be willing to do the the hard yards with the the larger regulators to be transparent and say, "Here are my challenges. Here's what I'm trying to do," uh, and to be talking to the side of a regulator that encourages innovation. So CFTC has Lab 2.0. Uh, we talk to the about the FCA's project Innovate. Singapore has, has similar um, capabilities. That outreach from regulators can be really, really helpful. Uh, but I'm going to move us on. Uh, there's a story uh, that we've got to cover, and we're up against it on time because there's just so much news, Colin. There's so much news. Um, this one is a uh, one that you picked out uh, in Cointelegraph about uh, blockchain tokenization, Tone the world into a massive stock market. I love this story. Tell us what it's about.
1: Okay, well, this is from our friend Balagis, over at uh, CEO over at Twenty One uh, Inc. So, what they what he's talking about, and Balaji's kind of as a background is also a uh, partner at um, Andreessen Horowitz, the VC or A sixteen Z, A sixteen Z. If you're from back there, in his opinion, everything that is scarce in any way, shape, or form will ultimately be tokenized.
0: So, our friend Richard Burton, uh, friend of the show put out a tweet recently with a slide basically demonstrating that mobile didn't kill laptop internet usage. Laptop internet usage has been largely flat. What we've actually seen is that mobile has come and sit on top of laptop internet usage and grown an entirely new market. It's a new business model. It's used at different times. If you think about when you use your phone, it's when you're not using your laptop. Uh, It's seen by new people at new times, creating new business models. Uh, And maybe And I think he was making an interesting comparison here to what we see happening with this tokenization world in which we're creating new business models and new revenue on top of the old world of financial services. And I hear a lot of incumbents say, hey, that market's not very big. It's not worth our attention. Because they're dealing with big markets, right? I mean, the markets that are the, the world's largest investment banks deal with absolutely dwarf the crypto markets. Um but the problem with those markets is they're not really growing, and in many cases, regulation is making those markets shrink. Whereas the crypto markets have real potential to grow into many different areas. And if this idea that anything that's scarce can be tokenized then we create a whole set of new asset classes that can be traded and a whole set of new opportunities that can create growth in financial services and if it's going to create growth there's opportunities for entrepreneurs if there's opportunities for entrepreneurs why aren't there opportunities for banks and especially the asset manager space i i really think this is an important point colin
1: and and I think what's really key in all of that um, and having blockchains behind this is is the, the notion of decentralization. He um, – although banks will play a critical role, what he sees is removing borders, removing barriers from doing business. Um, uh, the notion that you could – something scarce like property or grain in China or in South Korea could be owned by somebody sitting in South Africa. That's quite a cool concept and that's really where he's taking this is – one, as you put out, you know, new growth and new asset classes, but two, global ownership of these assets. This opens up uh, people that don't necessarily have to go through the traditional channels and becomes something potentially very scary for those that are uh, in asset management or in banking, but at the same time creates that massive opportunity to facilitate these things and
0: change your business models around that really, really interesting time. Certainly if I'm sitting in a strategy department somewhere or if I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm playing with these ideas of what commodities are out there, what new things will be tradable and how can I create a market for it and uh, how can I make money from it? I, I think it's the most exciting part of the, the whole space without question. Um, but I'm going to move us to a story here, another one in Cointelegraph saying there's a Japanese conglomerate launching a major Bitcoin mining center. Uh, so which Japanese conglomerate is launching? a major bitcoin mining center colin so this is
1: a company called gmo did some research online i could i could only find a wikipedia page in japanese it's that japanese um after translating this through google translate thank you very much google it's an internet infrastructure business so this this really makes a lot of sense I looking at it what is quite interesting is um this isn't a company going yes we're going to do uh, blockchain or maybe we're going to offer a couple of services they're they're going wholeheartedly into this thing um Japan, of course, a few weeks ago has decided that not only is Bitcoin legal, but it is currency, uh, just like any other currency. Um, so this company decided what they want to do is they want to get involved in things like uh, mining uh, exchanges or anything else that might make it more mainstream. Um, and they're seeing, you know, really, as we were talking about earlier, a loss of opportunity in, in more traditional areas and Bitcoin potentially being massive growth. Of course, the Japanese yen and uh, the interest rates on Japanese bonds are famously low. So new areas of opportunity are always a blessing for shareholders of Japanese companies as well as the management there.
0: It's always a blessing indeed when you've got those extra opportunities. I think the creeping legitimization of uh, the cryptocurrency world and especially bitcoin in japan is this the untold story of 2017 um, indeed the coindesk state of blockchain report uh, q2 2017 shows japan makes up more than 30 percent of all bitcoin transactions as you said they had legalized uh, what is now bitcoin and now many mainstream companies much like you were saying with the negative interest rates in switzerland and people potentially holding on to bitcoin as a way to deal with negative interest rates again we're seeing this in japan where they have negative interest rates so there's a, there's a commodity here that is quite practical for large corporations to hold on to and even governments which is interesting because the government itself doesn't back its own currency that it prints which puts it in an interesting position but it also one it validates the thesis i think of bitcoin which is having an asset that appreciates that is digital and can move around the world in two to three hours is useful uh, especially if it's digital and you can hold it quite quite easily with inside of technology, and I think two, this idea that um, ever lower interest rates uh, as a thesis has kind of uh, stopped working for a lot of countries, and now they're having to look to to alternatives, and maybe as a as a macro trend, that idea that that uh, that Greenspan economic policy is is finally coming to an end. Uh, maybe maybe not.
1: You know, I think, um, that, that whole notion of interest rates and what that will ultimately do to people after seeing this, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if it will fully go that way, but it is definitely something that people are talking about. Um, on the flight over, I watched, uh, there's an interesting show, I think it's on Netflix as well, called Banking on Bitcoin. Definitely recommend you, you check that one out. Talks about a lot of the story. And of course, Japan was famous for the first, uh, major Bitcoin exchange Mt. Gox that famously failed in 2014. Um, it, this is quite an interesting place for Bitcoin, even though we weren't talking about it that much until very recently. But Japan and Switzerland being on the forefront, maybe it's just a you know random chance that they both have low interest rates, or maybe there's something to it. Um, but definitely keep your eye on Japan.
0: I think there are macro trends pointing towards why cryptocurrency has grown um, that uh, that people are ignoring. I think people have gone, oh, it's all hype, um, and they're not looking at what's driving it uh, from from a macro trend perspective. And I think we do need to look at that more. Uh, and I think in a couple of years' time, we're going to see those trends appearing in strategy decks uh, as as this uh, as this subject rolls on and becomes more and more mainstream. Uh, Colin, uh, that's all for the news so far. Where can people find out more about you? At Colin G Platt on Twitter at Colin G. Platt. Don't forget that Twitter handle ever. And also, don't forget, if you disagree with anything we've said, which you probably can and should and would, um, then get in touch. We're on Twitter at Bchain insider that's the letter B chain insider to share your thoughts or drop us an email at podcasts at11fs.com we want to hear from you uh, 11fS the company that brings you this podcast are a challenger uh, agency who help banks and financial services providers and even governments achieve a lot more with digital uh, next I'm talking to Matt Spoke from Aon Network. Great. So I'm here with Matt Spoke from Nuco and of course Aon Network. Matt, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Simon? I'm not too bad, my friend. Not too bad. So uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Obviously, we know known each other a couple of years, but uh, you've come into the blockchain space. You've been doing a few things for a while. How, what's your journey here like? So I'm based in,
2: in Toronto, Canada. We run a company called Nuco. Um, I started in kind of full-time in the blockchain space back in early 2014 when I used to work at Deloitte. So the first thing that kind of got me in that, you know, people in the industry might be familiar with is the work we did at Deloitte called Rubix. I started a team back then focused on the enterprise markets. How could Deloitte be building a technology for for kind of their client base? Uh, Eventually, kind of piggybacked off of that with a few of my colleagues, uh, left the firm to start Nuco in uh, early 2016. So I've been doing this for about a year and a half. Um, still focused on the enterprise market, pretty heavily, um, you know, engineering focused team that's been building infrastructure solutions for, you know, groups of large companies, whether they be banks or governments or uh, any any industry. We're pretty low low in the stack. We're um, founding members of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance where I sit on, on the board. So, yeah, that's kind of our, our role in the market today.
0: And so what led you to kind of getting into where you are now? Because as I understand it, you're looking at doing a token sale, token generation type event. And you've obviously seen some things in the market. You've seen Ethereum come along. Like, what what kind of did you see that made you think what we're building we need? And what is it you're building?
2: yeah sure so aeon is is our project right now that we're we're pretty heavily focused on um we've got a pretty unique background as a company because we came from this, the enterprise side of the market and if if you remember kind of twenty fifteen twenty sixteen There was a lot of new enterprise companies popping up, you know, the chain.com's digital asset holdings, um, you know, Hyperledger got created in that time r three, obviously, and, and what was really obvious to us is that there was a there was a demand and appetite among large companies to start investigating this technology and understanding how it could be applied to their businesses. What was less obvious to us was where was the intersection between that and what was happening in the Bitcoin space and the Ethereum space? Because we were building kind of two different technologies in parallel. We were saying, hey, one is private systems, one is restricted environments, and the other one is, you know, crypto economics and and all this kind of great stuff that makes these public networks really meaningful. So, you know, we, we had this annoying role in the middle of this spectrum because we didn't fully buy into the fact that private blockchains were the end-all and be-all solution. But we also knew that the enterprise's requirements were a little bit too specific to just fit on top of any of the public networks. So Aon was kind of born out of that, that observation that there needed to be a balance between these two where, where you could build your own blockchains, you could connect these blockchains to each other. Enterprises could still have the flexibility to decide and design their own rules, interoperate with other public infrastructures. The challenge of, of scaling across many networks became um, more and more evident as, as, especially recently, the ICO craze on the Ethereum networks kind of drawn attention to some of the scaling challenges that many of the public
0: networks are facing. Um, so, you know, this is our take at a solution that makes complete sense i think it's uh, obvious that big companies have been looking at this blockchain space for quite some time and as they look at the space they've kind of uh, noticed that there's a number of problems with the uh, public blockchains like ethereum and bitcoin um in the purest sense they they don't necessarily work for them and yeah you're right digital asset and, and few others came out as as kind of a reaction to that i i really like this idea that you're playing in that in that gap between the two you've not gone hey we're just going to do private and we're just going to be closed, like uh, a digital asset, like an R3 and so on, where it's it's really kind of just for the organizations involved, and it's not just open. Uh, It's interesting that now we've seen the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance that's playing in the middle of that Venn diagram, and you're playing in the middle of that Venn diagram, I think, as well, between these public, open, permissionless blockchains that resemble more like the internet and these closed ones that resemble VPNs or private networks. The connector between those two, so drill down on that why Why do I need that connector and and how does that work and and how does Aon play into all of that
2: yeah, so i mean the the, the analogy you used is pretty is pretty much the way we look at it as well there's the, this topology around how networks were built in what you know we kind of commonly call the internet today the fact that companies have the ability to create private environments. Um, VPNs can exist between companies. Um, intranets can exist within an organization or among organizations. All of that is driven by requirements that are very specific by these enterprises, requirements that that say, uh, you know there's certain amounts of data or certain types of data we don't want flowing over the free internet, et cetera. So we just we're kind of mimicking that topology to a certain extent, saying if you're a group of banks, you're going to have some pretty stringent uh, regulatory requirements on how your network operates. Um, and it's difficult to to try to imagine how, uh, groups like like central banks or, or securities regulators are just going to get comfortable with public infrastructures where they have no say in their design or operation. So the way we've looked at it is the network of the future doesn't become a single blockchain. The network of the future becomes many, many blockchains that just are seamlessly able to communicate with each other. Uh, but within that kind of network of many blockchains, you can still define your own rules, define your own parameters of governance, etc. cetera. Um, as long as from a user's perspective, we can, we can kind of scrape away the need for unnecessary intermediaries and make, it, make a transaction flow look seamless, even if it's touching on multiple blockchains underneath the surface.
0: All right, but give me a use case there, right? So the, we've seen the public blockchain space become very popular with middle america middle income uh people across the west and indeed china and and a lot of the east now as well so do we find ourselves in a position where that's a use case that needs to come into banking or is there something in which the these use cases in banking need to go like what would i practically use this for so
2: I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the the obvious examples come out of like asset markets, commodities, equities, et cetera. But there's also a ton of applicability when we go, you know, outside of financial services in general. But some of the more forward thinking companies out there, some of which are involved in groups like the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and Hyperledger and others, are realizing that you know one part of the equation is how do I look at my existing business model and see how can I Digitize it, decentralize it, make it more efficient, and that might be with the creation of you know digital equivalences for the commodities assets that they manage or for the equity assets that they manage, et etc. The other part of the equation is looking at this completely net new world of assets. Should I as a bank or a commodities exchange or a stock exchange, get in the business of crypto should i be should I be touching B- bitcoin and ether and and, other, and all these kind of tokens that are emerging. And, you know, surprisingly, although they might not be talking about it publicly, this is where a lot of companies thinking has shifted. They said, hey, we understand the private blockchain space, we understand that we could probably lead to um, a more efficient transactional process on top of a blockchain among counterparties. But that's only half probably not even half, you know, that's probably 10 to 20% of the the benefit of this technology. The rest is looking at democratizing financial services and access to assets. Um, and, And I think all of a sudden you have these companies trying to Enter into the crypto space that has been dominated by startups and you know and, and exchanges that that have emerged only over the course of the last few years. But I think we're going to see these mainstream incumbents ch- jumping in. Uh,
0: that's interesting that you see the mainstreaming of the cryptocurrency space. That. Maybe two, three years ago, 2015, 2016, maybe 2014 even, the, the typical reaction was, Hey, this Bitcoin stuff is just going to go away. We're going to make sense of the technology. But now what you're hearing is that the certainly some parts of mainstream financial services and a lot of parts of uh, corporations generally outside of financial services are looking at that open source, open permissionless blockchain space going, Actually, there's something for us here we want to use and work with it, which isn't what was said when these companies like Digital Asset and R3 and others were founded. But now, because the corporates are asking for that, you need somebody who can play in the middle of those two. I guess there's something else within that where a different, like, not all blockchains are created equal. And we're using the term blockchains when the market tends to use the term the blockchain, referring to just Bitcoin's blockchain. But like, there are many different flavors of this thing. You mentioned, you know, Hyperledger, but within Hyperledger, there's at least seven. And different flavors of blockchain, and then there's Corda and there's Ethereum, and then a whole long tail of, of other ones. So, if a different blockchain can solve a certain problem well, pro- blockchain one solves this problem really well, blockchain two solves this other problem really well, then I obviously need a way to kind of communicate across those if I've got more than one problem in my business. But where do you think broadly? blockchains are solving problems for corporates and where do you think they might start to solve more problems in the future?
2: Yeah, so I, I think that's the exact way to think about it. I mean, blockchains are designed with uh, with different purposes. So you've got new systems getting built, you know, not to call out any, but new systems like IOTA, for example, which has got a very, very specific design around around small devices connecting over, over a blockchain. You know, that's a an architectural design that leads to certain use cases being you know, well-suited for it and other use cases being not well-suited for it. And I think we're going to see an increasing number of these unique design blockchains popping up, whether they're for enterprise use or not. Um, the reality is that most companies, you know, in different parts of their operation act in different roles. I might be a buyer to some, but a seller to others, a borrower from some, but a lender to others. And all of a sudden I, I, I have to integrate into systems that are built around that role. If I'm part of a supply chain or I'm part of some sort of financial network, um, And it's a good probability that many companies will have so many various roles that they're going to be participating in many different blockchains as a company based on that role in the in the market. Um, so that's where we've kind of seen more and more interest. When we start building blockchains, you know, today we've got a project that we're working on that, that focuses very heavily on compliance information being shared among banks in Canada. You know, that use case has a blockchain being built for it, and it's pretty well suited for it. Um, but, it, but it could be a very different blockchain solution if they're talking about international remittances, because now the, the network of participants and counterparties has changed. So in in that simple example, you've got a bank that will probably have to be on at least two blockchains, if not several. And now they need a mechanism to make sure that they can move transactional values and data across these blockchains. Aon's really looking to kind of fit that gap to say, well, to the extent that I have transactions on one blockchain that might have to trigger a transaction on another How do I do that without a reliance on an intermediary existing? So I don't want to reintroduce intermediaries, which has kind of been the trend to date in the blockchain space. And there's projects coming up with new solutions on this, but you know, the best example of intermediaries that we've created as part of our decentralization movement is exchanges. Exchanges have, have been created as a result of no connection between blockchains. Therefore, we rely on Poloniex and Coinbase and Kraken and others to kind of play that role. And, and that's only on token exchanges. But when you talk about any type of generic transaction, and you, and you wanting, let's say, a healthcare transaction, meaning the update of health records or something along those lines, triggering an insurance policy verification, triggering a payment, you know, these might be Built across three different blockchains with different counterparties, and they need. We want them to happen seamlessly. We don't want to have to reintroduce intermediaries to kind of move those messages around.
0: So this is what um, Vinay Gupta calls the Internet of Agreements. This is the idea that we will have different places that have different states of contracts or facts. So the the healthcare uh, insurance company may know that I, this really is me, and they that I am really covered for this thing. The hospital may know that they've really got me, and maybe checking with that healthcare company. Company, but there may be a bank involved in actually moving the money from the insurance company. And right now, all of that is pretty disjointed, kind of exists in paper, but they all kind of want some signature on it. And and some signature that sits in a in a database somewhere else is, is kind of one thing. This blockchain vision you talk about, this idea that we may indeed be able to transact across those different use cases, end-to-end requires a glue between them. And the only way we've had to do that before is exchanges. I think that's a super interesting way of trying to tie together that use case kind of end to end. And it'd be really interesting to think about what people would invent in future if those things do start to exist.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, most most applications to date that are being built in the blockchain industry are being built on top of a blockchain, either a a private blockchain or on top of Ethereum or, you know, using Bitcoin for for some sort of financial transaction. What we're envisioning is that the more complex and sophisticated applications that will get built over the next few years are going to have to get built across many blockchains. They're going to have inputs and triggers that are going to be coming from different underlying networks. And right now there's no efficient way to do that. So, you know, in our design for Aon, what we're building not only a mechanism for blockchains to communicate with each other, but it actually all gets rooted through a blockchain that we're building called Aon1. And Aon1 acts as a router of messages and kind of a communication protocol, but also acts as a home where you can build applications that have inputs from many other blockchains. So if you have triggers to a a contract that are coming from four or five different blockchains, where do you build that app? Um, And that's what we're building with Aon1 is is kind of an application platform that can have these triggers coming from a bunch of subordinate blockchains Um, seamlessly and still into decentralized design
0: so i'm pushed for time but i want to get to two questions really quickly question one is very much about uh where do you think we're at in the evolution of the maturity of this tech because there's clearly a lot of hype about right now but there are some people i speak to who are really bullish but for every one of those there's still five to ten people who are super skeptical which tells me we're probably it's probably not as much hype around it as people think there is i mean do you think there's masses of too much hype here or is a we kind of in a point where get what they're getting is good, or are we just at the beginning of a journey? I think it's the beginning of a journey, but there will be
2: more scrutiny and diligence placed on projects, and I think that's that's necessary. Um, you know, so we'll probably see an adjustment of the types of projects that are getting funded over time. You know, a lot of people compare this to you know the the mid to late '90s IPO bubble, but the the reality was back then, although you had a lot of crap companies getting built. They all had some sort of due process they had to go through to get listed as public companies. So there was a bare minimum threshold of what you needed to be able to demonstrate that threshold doesn't exist for us yet. So I'd, I'd love to see some, you know, a reduction of the number of what, what some people have started calling crap coins or whatever, um, with some expectation of like a minimum threshold of, of, of quality. But that being said, I think we're just at the beginning of a really long journey of projects being built. What's interesting Uh, and different than I think the previous generation of of networking technologies is we don't seem to be getting to a conclusion. You know, at some point, the industry concluded that TCP IP was the standard. We keep kind of evolving on conclusions by introducing new and new alternatives, essentially. And I don't think that's going to slow down. So what we really need is a mechanism that even if blockchains continue to evolve, there's still a common, simple, generic protocol that allows them to communicate. So inside a, a design like Aon, what we're particularly excited about is it doesn't matter if you're building on Ethereum or EOS or some new blockchain that hasn't even been invented yet. The mechanism is is designed generically enough that you can still have interoperability around existing blockchains, previous blockchains, or future blockchains with very little requirement on integration of those, exist, of, of those, those blockchains themselves. They don't have to fork their protocols to kind of match this.
0: So, so how would you position that against, say, Interledger Protocol, against what Tendermint have been looking at for some time with the Zones project, with 0x and, and all these kind of guys that are out there?
2: Without going too deep in the specifics around any one of those projects, I think what's what's particularly exciting about the blockchain space today is that the, the capital that's available to test the development of protocols means that we can all run large-scale global experiments and see what happens. You know, we're all working towards different hypotheses. We all have, you know, there's, you're going to find similarities across many projects, but with slightly different angles and slightly different implementations. And over time, we're just going to see where adoption comes from. I think this is kind of a positive thing for the industry that we've got the funding available to run parallel projects that test kind of different nuances of the same hypothesis. Some of these projects are working a lot more on connecting public blockchains for the flow of currencies across these blockchains, whether that's kind of ripple to Bitcoin to ether or, you know, whatever the case might be or swapping tokens more effectively that are all ERC 20 tokens on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, We're looking a little bit more generically at kind of the intersection of transactions in a very broad sense of the word. Transactions meaning kind of any state change on any blockchain. So that can be the movement of a token, but it can also just simply be the update of a, an address or something. You know, whatever's being stored on these blockchains gets considered a transaction. Um, but, uh, you know, for now, I don't think we're going to get to a conclusion as to who's building the better solution or, or, and nor do we need to. We're all just kind of running experiments and we have a huge market in which we can experiment with an available amount of capital, which is you know encouraging
0: for everyone yeah and then that's a bit of a double-sided risk right so on the one side fragmentation equals it's very hard to do something real at massive massive scale unless you really draw a box around it and know that actually this is the specific problem i'm solving with these participants in which case i can do something very real you mentioned for example healthcare. you mentioned for example compliance and so on but i do also think the opposite side of that fragmentation is we're going to look back on this period as one of the most creative Uh, in history in terms of developing new concepts and I think a lot of the skeptics out there might just be missing that. So you are involved in generating tokens, token sales, something along those lines. Uh, Tell people a little bit about that. I believe you were recently covered in TechCrunch. You guys are getting all the headlines right now. You know we're primarily focused
2: right now on getting um, a first release of our of our protocol kind of up and running. The protocol itself, I mean, Aeon's designed and built around the concept of an economic model that incentivizes participation. So uh, there's a system that essentially allows you to connect blockchains to each other, connect them through a network we call Aeon One. Uh, we have we have a concept in our in our white paper that's you know w- well articulated called bridges. Um, validators of these bridges essentially have a mechanism to be able to earn financial reward for for maintaining these bridges. So underpinning this concept is uh, a a token economic model. Um, This is where we think we have a good opportunity to position this as a solution that enterprises would be comfortable and willing to adopt their first foray into the crypto world, so to speak. Ah, uh, especially companies that we've been dealing with that are you know the companies that we've all spoken about for a few years as the ones being at risk of disintermediation. The way we're positioning this and and it's being well received is the fact that there there are new business models to be created inside these networks. And although you might today be the centralized clearinghouse that might not be needed in five to 10 years, you could potentially shift your business model to be a validator of transactions or a maintainer of a bridge or these types of things. So we're, we're not talking so much about you know, eliminating participants in the economy, but just giving them a set of tools where they can kind of redefine their roles. For that to, to work, we're building a token. We're building a, a, an economic system that allows people to participate, to build applications, to build bridges, to build new blockchains. The the Aeon token essentially has four functional purposes, many of which, you know, would not be too dissimilar from other blockchain projects you may have heard of. But, um, you know, we're we're just about to do an update to our website where this will be significantly better laid out. But generally speaking, the four things you can do with an Aeon token are uh, build and run an application through our virtual machine, build a bridge by um, essentially staking tokens into the network, build a new participating blockchain. So one thing that's kind of unique about our design is you can use Aon1 as a creator of new blockchains. So rather than having to customize your own design, we're going to have kind of a a suite of software tools pre-built so that people can kind of define the parameters of a new blockchain they want to build and spin it up from within Aon. And then fourthly, you can use tokens to participate in the validation process. Um, So those are the purposes of the token. We anticipate that people are going to want to get their hands on those uh, to participate
0: and what I think is interesting is you have a very clear articulation of the purpose of your token. This is what you use them for. And I think that's really cool. Um, so tell me a little bit more about how people can find out more about Aon Network and yourselves. How do they get in touch with you? So there's going to be a lot more information coming out over
2: the next few months, but you know we're pretty easy to find online. You can get in touch with us at Aon.network is, is the URL, at Aon underscore network on Twitter. You can find me at Matt Spoke on Twitter you know, join our newsletter, join our discord channel, whatever, whatever you want. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We're also really interested in getting feedback about what we've been publishing. There's more papers coming. We've, we've released kind of an introductory white paper. There will be more, uh, in-depth papers about different portions of our architecture. and, And we're hoping that people will just participate and give us comments so that we can kind of adjust our design as we move forward.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much, Matt, for being on blockchain insider. Yeah. Thanks so much, Simon. A big thanks to Matt Spoke, and of course, a big thanks to at Colin G. Platt. Uh, please don't forget. Uh, we are at Beechain Insider on Twitter if you want to hear more. And check out 11fs.com if you want to learn more about the team and how we help companies use technologies like blockchain and digital every single day and how we're helping them make it real. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, and tell some friends. Tell somebody who you knows into this subject to have a listen and let us know your thoughts. Uh, until next time, goodbye.